we don't, as a church, really know much about our legacy or where we come from. We don't know our roots, and it's important for us to understand it because it makes us thankful for where we are at. We know that as a young man, Martin Luther was sent to college to become a lawyer. His father had saved all of his money to send his son, Martin, to this great college. It great expectations for Martin. And as a student of law, Luther distinguished himself as one of the most brilliant minds in all of Europe. But in the midst of that experience, he was coming home one day on a horse. And while he's riding home, he found himself in the middle of a huge storm. And young Luther found himself trapped in this, what they call an electrical storm. And lightning was flashing and the thunder was rumbling and suddenly a lightning bolt landed so close to him he fell off of his horse into the mud and had to feel his own body to see if he was still alive. Right then he cries out, Saint Anne, <laughs> help me. And if you save me, I promise I'll become a monk. Now, you got to realize this was basically during the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church was also uh, the government. and They made the rules. They were God. They spoke as if God and nobody else read the Bible. Nobody else knew anything. And here he is laying in the mud crying out to Saint Anne to help him and promising that he will become a monk if he lives. Of course, he survives. Saint Anne. Mary's mom, did I say, did it sound like <laughs> Saint Anne? And uh, knowing very little, of course, that's how he prayed. And then he survived the storm. He took this narrow brush with death as a mandate from God, as, as a call to enter the ministry. To his father's absolute horror, Martin dropped out of law school and enrolled in the monastery to become a priest as he kept his vow and his promise that he made to Saint Anne. And in the monastery, Luther became well-known for his mental capacity. He was kind of a slow bloomer. He started a little slow but um, because he wasn't all that educated as a child. But then he caught up real quickly, and he became um, known for his mental capacity. But he also became a problem to his authorities, not because he was rebellious, but because he was so, he, he was almost fanatical. And um, as part of their daily routine, these priests in the making at the monastery had to do their daily confessions. And every student every day would have to go into that little booth and confess to the priest all the sins that they committed in the last 24 hours. And uh, these guys, of course, what, what, how many sins can you commit being in a monastery, right? So they would go into this confession booth and they would say, well, okay, so, uh, you know, I confess my sins. Father, I have sinned. And and uh, I wasn't diligent as I should have been yesterday. Please forgive me. Um, I didn't go to bed when I should have gone to bed. I, I broke the rule and I stayed up later. I read another five chapters of Psalms and I know I shouldn't have done it. So please forgive me. And so the, the, the basic routine was that these young guys being trained to be priests, they would go into the confession booth between three minutes and five minutes and it would be done, right? But not so with Martin, no. This fanatic uh, went into that booth on a daily basis and mourned his sins, no matter how tiny or trivial they may have been. He would confess them over and over and over again until he felt like he was forgiven for them. And the priest was taken captive on the other side of that little screen and having to sit there listening to Martin just lament and mourn and wail over his tiny little sins that he committed that he thought was huge before God. And uh, sometimes it was two hours, other times it was three hours of confession, and sometimes it was up to four hours of confession a day. It wore these priests out to the point where they thought Martin had to have something wrong with him mentally. This boy was not stable. We have a problem on our hands. Martin, you're forgiven now. I forgive you. Are you sure? You're forgiven. Yeah, but what? Wait, there's something else. Let me think. Oh, God, there's something else. What was it? 
and he would lament. And then these guys just got worn out thinking that there's something wrong with him. He would later talk about how he felt when he came out of those marathon conf confession sessions. And he said he felt like when he walked out, he was so light and he was so free. And then five minutes later, he would go like, oh, you know what? There was something I forgot to confess. And he said then every time five minutes afterwards, he would remember something and it would be like the weight of the world fall on him. Oh my God. And he would help me, God. He was, he was grieved over that sin again. He had a very unusual sensitive conscience. And he had a very, very uncommon fear of the Lord. Some had said that there is a very thin line between genius and insanity. And this is a very great example of it with Martin. He had this fanatical legal mind. Thus the reason he performed so well in law school. Because he, he understood the law. And breaking even the smallest law puts you at odds with the government. But this caused him to understand how each and every one of his sins caused him to lose his right standing before a totally righteous and holy God at the same time. This is possibly one of the reasons he had such, a, such an awareness of his sin, his unrighteousness, and his lost as a lost soul. His conscience was so alert and alive in regards to God's standards, and this drove him to be the serious young man that he was. Not only was Luther intemperate in his speech, he was a bit of a bombastic guy, he was very forceful, he was uncontrolled in his communications, but he was also neurotic. Uh, he always suffered from anxiety. No kidding. <laughs> He suffered from, of course, upset stomach. And then he also had kidney stones often. And he predicted his own death seven times. He said, I'm dying, dying. <laughs> Every time he had stomachache, he thought he was going to die. He thought God was judging him. His phobias were many, and they were legendary. Everybody knew him to be a neurotic man. The day came when Luther was to be ordained. And uh, he was supposed to perform his first Mass. So his father and family at the time had finally made peace with the fact that he gave up law school. And then he decided to pursue being a, a priest instead. And so everybody arrived that day very excited about Martin because he had established himself as a brilliant student and a fantastic public speaker, orator, and, and uh, brilliant. And everybody was in great anticipation to hear him perform his first mass as a brand new, um, you know, ordained priest. Now, you have to take in consideration that in the Roman Catholic mass, then and now, it is believed that a divine miracle of transubstantiation takes place during the mass, right? So transubstantiation is really when, even though nobody can see the observable change within the bread and the wine, they believe that intrinsically it actually divinely turns into the very body of Jesus Christ and the very blood that He shed. They view it as that even today. And it was a, it was, it's, it's, it's an incredible miracle that takes place every single time a Mass is performed. And so this is where His mind was at. And so here is a very confident, slightly arrogant, narcissistic, yet brilliant and competent young Martin. Everybody's got high expectations of this well-educated, nearly ordained priest, and they're all waiting for him to perform this Mass. And um, as he was to pray over the bread and the wine, which will initiate this divine miracle, as it was about to miraculously turn into the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ Himself, Martin froze. He began to tremble, and he began to shake. And... and his mouth opened up and he tried to say a few words. His lips moved, but no sound came out. It was ultra cringeworthy moment. <laughs> Everybody was really awkward. There was his father, obviously thinking that, told you so, should have been a lawyer. But that wasn't what happened. He didn't forget his lines. 
He wasn't nervous because there were people. He explained later that it wasn't because of a mental lapse, but it was the fear that came upon him, seeing himself as unworthy to perform this mighty miracle of transubstantiation. His fear of God was very unusual. He took things really serious. <laughs> he took everything about God in the most, in the highest degree. He wasn't intimidated by people at all. He was literally scared of God. The very God that he read about in the Bible. There was a turning point in his life. One night, Martin was preparing a lecture to teach the students under him, and he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. This was the big turning point for him, and this was the trigger point for the whole entire Reformation. And that's why we are here today. That's why we are not Roman Catholic. That's why we are part of a Protestant church. This was the Protestant movement being birthed, which stands for the protest against the Roman Catholic heresy. Here is that verse. He read it, and suddenly it opened to him. It says this, For in it, it referring to the gospel, for in it the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, right standing with God, is revealed. For in it, the message, the words, the message of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that account of Jesus, the perfect God among us, dying for our sin as a substitute, taking the wrath of God on our behalf, that message in it, the Bible says, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith. What does it mean from faith to faith? From the beginning of faith all the way to the end of faith. In other words, the author and the finisher. Everything, nothing more, nothing less. So he read it, for in it the gospel is my right standing that God gives me His righteousness that's now on me is revealed from beginning to end as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. The penny dropped. The penny dropped. Suddenly it came to him. Forgiveness, redemption, righteousness, salvation, eternal life was not through the sacraments, but by faith alone. Forgiveness, redemption, righteousness, salvation, and eternal life was not through rituals, but by faith alone. Justification before God, the great judge of the universe, being right with Him was not through indulgences, but by, the f by faith in Jesus Christ alone. From faith to faith, bookended, nothing added, nothing subtracted. No indulgences, no sacraments, no rituals, no deeds, but faith in Christ. And a penny dropped for Him. Suddenly, he saw how God freely provides righteousness as a gift to anyone who has faith in Christ. That's the requirement. Luther said that it was the first time he understood the gospel. And for the first time, he realized how his station before God does not depend on his performance of a mass or participation in indulgences. His perfection in the practice of rituals or in sacraments, His holiness, His deeds, but on faith in Christ alone. From that time on, Luther became a preaching machine of this message. Justification by faith alone. Justification 
by faith alone to the small, to the great, to the known, to the unknown, to the peasant, to the princes, to the rich, and to the poor, the message of justification by faith alone. And this became the message that Luther was willing to die for. Well, you can only imagine, here he was, not so much a rebel trying to overthrow a church or anything, but here he was with the understanding of what the actual book says. The actual book says that. And this is the first thing we can learn from him, that God's will came to us in a book. God's will comes to you in a book, fixed, outside of you. It's objective. It comes to you from the book. God gave. That's why we as Christians, we are students of the book. Well, back then in the Dark Ages, you know, that wasn't true. They weren't even allowed to read that book. They were told whatever was needed at the time, laws were made. They were in the Dark Ages. They had a veil. They didn't understand the will of God. They didn't have the will of God. They had the Roman Catholic Church and its and her corrupt leaders. That's all they had. And here's this young man who could read, who was brilliant and now educated, and he was seeing what the actual book, the objective truth told him. And it was in contradiction to what the Roman Catholic Church's subjective truth demanded of him. So there were many doctrines that taught by the church at the time that tormented this young man. But for most who understood it, couldn't care less because there wasn't a fear of the Lord. Here's the difference. Martin, <laughs> Martin, even if it took four hours a day, he needed to be right with God. Here comes in, here's the difference, folks, between you and all your Facebook friends. Here's the difference between you and today's culture. Here's the difference between you and all the tares that mix itself with the wheat inside of churches in our country and our world. Here's the difference between you and goats, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. The difference between you and them is the fear of God. Well, what does God say about that? Because I'm okay with that. Whatever He says I'm okay with. Yeah, but your tradition, I don't care about my tradition. Yeah, but culture, I don't care about culture. <laughs> yeah, but are you going gonna to be the only, I don't care. Yeah, but we're, what about peace? Aren't we supposed to be at peace with God? <laughs> so here's this young man with this extremely sensitive conscience and, and, and high degree of the fear of the Lord, burdensome by and tormented by these teachings the Roman Catholic Church, but the one that just absolutely killed him was the indulgences. At the time, the Dominican priest named Johann Tetzel was commissioned by Pope Leo X <clears throat> and was in the midst of a major fundraising campaign in Germany to finance the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So just like any kind of church Renovation program, you know, he was out there trying to gather more finances in order to complete the work of the Lord, and it needs to look beautiful. <clears throat> so many church members in Luther's sphere purchased indulgences from this Johann Tetzel and later came to Luther and showed him what they had purchased, claiming, telling Luther that they no longer had to repent for their sins because their sins were now paid for. This, you can only imagine, to a God-fearing man with a very sensitive conscience absolutely infuriated him. And so he took a pen and paper and he wrote down what we know today as the 95 Thesis. On October 31, which is only a week and some away from today, which is the birthday of the day, of uh, back going 500 and some years ago, 1517, Martin Luther approaches the doors of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nails a piece of paper to it containing the 95 revolutionary opinions that would begin the Protestant Reformation. And in these theses, 
Luther condemned the excesses and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the papal practice called indulgences. Now, after Martin nailed the 95 Thesis on the church doors in Wittenberg, a controversy started spreading across the whole entire Europe. Of course, it came to the ears of Pope Leo X, and Pope Leo responds with, Ah, he's a drunken German monk. He will, he will change his mind the moment he sobers up. Well, that didn't happen. He sobered up, but he didn't change his mind. The controversy continued on. Now, at this stage, it wasn't like the gloves came off, because with Martin, the gloves were always off. He was what we would view today as probably somebody who's extremely hot-tempered and who's quick to speak. And in the 16th century, it was acceptable to discuss theological matters in, in, in a more unpolitical way, uh, non excuse me, non-politically correct way. Um, they weren't too concerned about being politically correct in any way. They were concerned about what the truth would be. The debates were very controversial, rough, and robust. And when you read some of the 16th century authors, it seems like these people were, were absolutely ruthless with each other as they attacked each other. And as you see, even in Europe today, in especially England, you see when they go to Congress, you know, they, they basically just hurl insults. <laughs> it was pretty much the same thing back in the day. And when it came to being a brawler, a verbal brawler in debating and arguing with doctrinal dissenters, R.C. Sproul says of Martin Luther, and I quote, even in that crowd of ruthless debater, Martin Luther was in a class all by himself. He also says this, Sproul says, and I quote, Martin Luther was so intemperate, so bombastic, so rude at times that people even suggested he suffered from a character disorder. Our 21st century psychoanalysis have suggested that Martin Luther had major mental challenges. The, the psychoanalysis takes into consideration the things that Martin Luther said, the things that he did, the papers that he wrote. By the way, <coughs> he wrote over 80,000 pages. And that man wrote. And it, he didn't have spell check. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant theologian. So they considered all the things that he said, the things that he wrote, the things that he did, and the things, all those things he did at the time in which he lived. Why? Because at the time in which he lived, people were being slaughtered for taking the position Martin took. People would be burnt at the stake, and they, all of them were. John Huss, before Martin, they were all burnt at the stake for what he chose to do. Yet, here he is. Hello, world. <laughs> he writes 80,000 pages correcting all their wrongs, and he does it in a very confident way. So modern psychoanalysis takes all these things in consideration, the time in which he lived, and they basically conclude that he, the, concluded that he was in fact sane. Insane, excuse me, insane. So what do people see when they look at Luther that makes them think he was insane and out of his mind? Well, you know, I'll just take a portion out of this book. If you've never read it, maybe you should. It's kind of difficult, but this book is a transcript of the debate between Luther and Erasmus, who was a very eloquent, well-spoken, um, well-known, and championed Roman Catholic apologist. And so I'll just, I'll just read to you a portion. So this Erasmus wrote a thesis or a book called uh, The Diatribes, where he, where he condemns Luther and everything that Luther says, right, and stands for. So Luther decides, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll come back and I will write, I will debate him in this way. He starts off in the book called The Bondage of the Will. He says, your book, Erasmus, The Diatribes, which is a book judging Luther, he says, in my estimation, <clears throat> so mean and so vile, that I greatly feel sorry for you for having defiled your most beautiful and ingenuous language with such vile trash. And I feel an indignation against the matter also. 
that such unworthy stuff, your content, should be borne about in ornaments of eloquence, eloquent speech so rare, which is as if rubbish and dung waste should be carried in vessels of gold and silver. And this you yourselves seem to have felt, who were so unwilling to undertake this work of writing because your conscience told you that you would of necessity have to try to point with all the, power, all the powers of eloquence and that, after all, you would not be able to, to, so to blind me by your coloring, but that I should, having torn off the deceptions of language, discover the real dregs beneath. For although I am rude in speech, yet, by the grace of God, I am not rude in understanding truth. So here he's basically saying to him, Erasmus, you're so eloquent in speech, you're so eloquent in your writings, but having to sit here and read the content of your work is like watching somebody walking down a street carrying beautiful plates of gold and silver filled with dung. These people were rough. They were ruthless. Some were rude in speech, but not rude in truth. That's why modern psychologists view Martin Luther as a megalomaniac with dreams of personal grandeur. Miriam Webster's dictionary defines megalomaniac as a delusional mental illness that is marked by feelings of personal omnipotence and grandeur, thinking that you're larger than life itself. Well, the reason they do see him as that is because here is a young Martin who stood up against the educational system of the day. Here is a young Martin Luther who was not so long ago a student who now stands up against every, um, every elitist professor and all the hired learned people. Here is young Martin Luther standing up against every major authority structure of the day, the religious hierarchy of the world and the governmental hierarchy of the world. Professionals would call somebody who single-handedly takes on all levers of, levers of power at once a megalomaniac. This was Martin Luther. So since the Reformation was raging forth throughout all of Europe, everybody picking up on Martin Luther's message of justification by faith alone, not indulgences or anything else, but faith alone from beginning to end, Martin was later summoned to appear before the religious and civil authorities where he was supposed to recant his heresy for preaching the doctrine of justification by faith. So they called him in and they said, your teachings are contrary to ours, therefore you are a heretic. Come and repent. Come and recant. So this assembly was held in 1521. It's called the Diet of Worms. And it was an assembly of the Roman Catholic Emperor called by Charles V. And its purpose was to deal with this drunken monk, Martin Luther. And when he was on his way there to the meeting, now you realize that this is the meeting everybody else went to before they got burnt, right? And so <laughs> he's on his way to this meeting where he's going to be standing in front of all of the authorities of the world, the known world at the time, and they're going to demand that he recants. And if he doesn't, who knows what would happen to him. On his way there, somebody asks him what he was going to say. This, these were his words, and I quote, Previously, he says, I used to speak of the Pope as the vicar of Christ. But now, I'm going to say that the Pope is the adversary of Christ, the vicar of Satan himself. Close quote. That's what he said. Those are the kind of statements that he would make, tactless, undiplomatic as he always was, bullish, and in that papal bull called Ex Surge Domine, Pope Leo excommunicates Martin Luther, called him a wild pig. The name of the, of the papal bull means, rise up, O God, rise up, O Lord. So the Pope basically summoned him with this bull called Ex Surge Domine, rise up, O God, against this pig that's running amok inside of your, your vineyard. 
take care of him. God, rise up against him. So you know that they were very antagonistic toward Martin. But what would he care? He fears God. When Luther walked into that chamber at the Diet of Worms, he was surrounded by the highest and most powerful of men in the world. They gave him the opportunity to recant. In other words, reverse his doctrinal positions. They stacked all of his books that he had written, all of them, a judgment on the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, told him, recant all the books that you have written, all the writings that go contrary to our doctrine. Reverse your doctrine. Repent from your heresy. Now, Hollywood would like to tell you that this very strong, confident, bombastic, politically incorrect buffoon said, I will not, and here I stand. That's what they would like to put in a movie, but that's actually not what happened. Luther became, as he was, <laughs> at his very first um, performance of the Mass, he became timid started whispering, his mouth moving. Nobody could hear what he was saying. He just, what was he saying? What's he saying? He starts whispering. And eventually, they ask him to repeat it. He repeats it, and they hear what he's saying. He says, can I, can you please give me another day, another 24 hours? Let me reconsider. So he asks for another 24 hours. He was not sure about what he believed. They gave him the 24 hours. He went to his room, and that night he started praying. He prayed throughout the whole night. It was almost like a Jesus prior to his crucifixion moment. And that night, you will see in the latest movie of Martin Luther that was made, they really portray that night very accurately about how Luther was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He was in two minds. He was so tormented. He was weeping and wailing. He was crying before God. He thought he was wrong, but then he realized he was wrong before God. And Martin was filled with anguish in his Gethsemane moment, and he prayed that night in desperation. Then he wrote down a prayer, which we still have today. And we're still blessed with that prayer as we see his mind swinging from one side to the other side. He prays, and I quote, O oh God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is this world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in Thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I'm to depend upon any strength of this world, it's all over. Sentence has gone forth, O oh God, O oh God, O oh God, O oh Thou my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beg you. You should do this by your own power. This work is not mine, it's yours. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is yours, not mine. It is a righteous and everlasting cause, O oh God. Help me, O oh faithful and unchangeable God. I lean not upon men. O faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from his mouth must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear me? My God, are you no longer alive? No, you can't die. You're hiding yourself from me. Thou hast chosen me from this work. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thy own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. Lord, where are you? My God, why, where are you? 
come, I pray you. I'm, I'm ready. Behold me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. For the cause is holy, it is your own. I will not let you go, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body which is the work of your hands should be cast forth into the fire, trod upon foot, cut into pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is still yours. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. I want to just stop there. Yes, I have your own word to assure me of it. That's all he had was a scripture. My soul belongs to you and will abide with you forever. Amen. Oh God, send help. Amen. You can see how Luther kept on swinging with that pendulum from left to right, from one side to the other. But he said, I have your word to assure me of it. That was the only thing Luther had. This is the first thing we learn about Luther's life, is that God will come to us in a book. God will come to us in a book fixed, unchanging. Nothing added, nothing taken away. Cursed be the man that does. The Word of God or the will of God comes to us from the outside. It's not subjected to us. It's not subjected to a culture. It's not subjected to the age. It comes from the book. That's why you and I as Christians, we are people of the book. We are not people of the culture. Today's evangelical, evangelical movement is becoming people of the culture. We are people of the book. We believe in the, the sufficiency of scriptures. We believe in, script, uh, in, in scriptures alone. Sola scriptura, scriptures alone. We identify with it, not with our own heritage, not with our own culture, not with this age. We identify with it. This is the first thing we had to learn, and we have to learn from Luther. You know, today's Christians are so fickle that the moment, if they had to see somebody like Luther, they would crucify the guy. How dare you? Be nice. What, like you? <laughs> Tina said it so accurately the other day. She was actually ministering to ladies in Indiana, and she said if Jesus was nice, he'd never be crucified. There's a difference between being nice and being kind. Nice is you trying to take something from somebody. You want to be nice. You want to be accepted, whatever the case. You know, nice has an agenda. Truth has God's agenda because, let me say this, uh, um, kindness has God's agenda because kindness is rooted in truth. And Jesus was kind enough to give us the truth no matter how painful it was. You see, nice is like, oh, I will have to tiptoe around every single person's opinion Forget the truth. I just want to make sure we're okay. we got peace, you see. That's why in order to be a pastor today, you basically have to be a fairy, right? You basically have to tiptoe around everybody's little hurt and opinion and owie because, you know, you, you dare not touch that owie. <laughs> you, know? you know, this week, some of you are part of what we call Christ Nation Radio Church. And Christ Nation Radio Church is part of our ministry here but it's funded by, by the Friends of Radio Church. And, um, of course, we do videos every week, and we reach audiences around the world. And we've done it for a while, and we've put thousands upon thousands of dollars into building this ministry around the world called Christ Nation Radio Church. It's an online ministry, mostly on Facebook and YouTube. And so thousands upon thousands of dollars have gone into Facebook to build an audience that love the message that they hear. And so some of you watching online are probably possibly from it. But this week, Facebook decided that they will start deleting some of the things we put up to the audience we basically have reached through the money that we gave Facebook, right? So we put a lot of money into Facebook, only for them to decide that they're going to police what we put, put up. So I posted this meme, 
by John Calvin where he said, Never sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. Never sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. Well, that makes sense to me. Luther is a great example of somebody that was unwilling to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. And so were all the martyrs. Well, they took off the, the post. It was too offensive. Somebody got offended, and Facebook decided, even though we're a great customer, later all the backstab us in order to protect some disgruntled person happens to be in South Africa. <laughs> and they basically canceled us. Can you believe that? So I go on my private page, and I said something with the, with, you know, Facebook is trash, which they are. The company is, because they have standards that's absolutely contrary to scriptures. Well, you won't believe it. Guess who got angry at me? Christians. Yeah. Christians, how dare you, in your position, say something that public that's not peaceable? How dare you? Really? I'm just wondering, can you find me one man of God throughout the history of Christianity? One man of God throughout the history of Christianity, greatly used by God who was peaceable. Go ahead. Let's start with Jesus. Find me one more. You see, Christianity is upside down. That post right there, that statement by John Calvin, is absolutely what's going on in culture today. Sacrificing truth for the sake of peace with you. And Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but the sword between mother and daughter, father and children. He came to bring the, bring the sword. Don't, don't, don't. Yours, your loyalty is not to a person. Your loyalty is to a truth. That's who we commit to, tr the truth of God. And may we have hearts so sensitive May we have consciences so sensitive before God that we would, like Luther, stand and start shaking, not being able to talk because we want to make sure we are right before God. We stand at a place where we are not sacrificing God's truth for the sake of peace with another person. That's what leaders in the evangelical movement are doing right now. They are whoring with the world. You can go and read, you can go and read the, um, uh, the Elijah. All of the prophets said the same thing. They all warned, stop whoring with the world. In other words, being loved by and loving the world at the, at the expense of God's truth. This is where the church is at today. So, I'm saying that because... Actually, there is no middle ground anymore. There actually is no longer a fence for you to sit on in this culture that we live in today. There is no gray area for you to go and find safety. Well, I love both. No, you don't. Jesus says you can't. You either love light and hate darkness, or you love darkness and hate the light. You either love compromise and hate truth, or you love truth and hate compromise. But let me tell you, when you choose truth, guess who will come after you? The tares, not the wheat. The tares, not the world. The tares. In other words, those sitting in the seats, they will come after you. How dare you say something so rude, cruel? You're supposed to love. Why not be peaceful? Why not be nice like you for calling me out? That's what 
That's what the seats are. That's what the, and now the leaders are doing it. You won't believe, you won't believe what's happening in the church today. And the culture is pushing the church like a toothpaste tube. And everything's coming out. Every person's position is being revealed. There is no fence to sit upon. So Luther prays this prayer all night long. He says, oh God, where are you? Day two in the chambers. Luther walks down, surrounded by the mightiest men in the world of the day. Disagreement with each and every one of them. This is the time they say to him, you have one more opportunity, recant. He explains a whole entire page, his position, and he says how, how his conscience is clear over this book and that book and this statement and that statement and this doctrine. They're sitting there and they listen and they listen and they listen and, they, and he goes, well, what about that corruption and what about this, tr this deception and what about that lie? And he says, well, all of these things. And they're sitting and they're sitting and at the end they said, we're waiting for your yes or your no. Will you recant or will you not? And then he ends with these words. He says, If then I am not convinced by proof from the Holy Scriptures, the book. Can everybody say the book? That, that's the word you hear. That's the voice of God to you. And this was a revelation to Luther. That's God speaking. He says, If then I am not convinced... By proof from these scriptures, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That statement right there sparked a full-blown reformation around the known world. The world was on fire with the message of the gospel. Justification through faith alone. Justification through faith alone. Just to forget the Pope. Justification through faith. Forget, forget all of that. Justification through faith alone. Justification. The book says it. And people came alive everywhere and they rose up everywhere. Of course, not without persecution. We find ourselves in something similar today in our culture. Where there are new kind, a new spin on old heresies always coming, right? But this is why God has given us a heritage to go back to our roots and to follow how God from the actual apostles to the early church fathers of the, of the first century preached the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can still read the writings of Justin Martyr. You can read the writings of Polycarp and Arrhenius. And you can read the writings of those who were trained by the apostles themselves. And then, of course, by 300-some, you have where the Roman Empire united with the actual church and the church became the leaders and in order to experience peace within their kingdom, they had to make sure everybody's in unity, and the way to make every, get everybody into unity is to say to the church, okay, start accepting everybody's gods. Everybody's little opinion needs to be accepted in here so that when they walk in here, they all feel fine. Why? Because we need peace, we need unity. That's exactly how the Catholic Church moved to become the Roman Catholic Church who then accepted all of these different pagan gods and practices. It was for the sake of what? Peace. And the goal was what? Unity. But what are we doing with seeker-sensitive? Aren't we doing the same thing? We don't want crosses up and we don't want like, no, we, you know, we want to do whatever we need to do in order to make sure whoever walks in are fine. You know, we're not going to use the word sin. God forbid it would hurt somebody. 
Oh, and repentance, don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything, actually. Nothing. You know, thanks for coming. Aren't we doing exactly the same thing that happened back there? Well, yes, we are. We need Luther's in this day and this age. We need God-fearing men and God-fearing women with a conscience so tender before God that they will stay up all night because they are tormented by their own double minds. We need men and women of God who fear God in such a way to the degree that they fear no man, even if they are the only one standing up against every lever of power in this world. Maybe people were right about Luther, calling him mentally ill, that's what they called him, rude, <laughs> megalomaniac, character disorder, thoughts of grandeur, neurotic. However, this man was used by God. This man was used by God, not because he was flawless, but because he feared God. Let us start measuring our lives by the fear that we have for God, not by our own nice and sweet compliance in order to be pleasers of man. But we have to become pleasers of God. God has called you to truth, and that is not always the most convenient position to take. Actually, it's never. It's always the most inconvenient place to take is the place of truth. I'm not asking anybody to be rude. I'm just saying Luther was. But I'm just telling you that we have already seen it. Pastors losing their churches because they weren't nice enough. You know, you've seen it. What was their scandal? Oh, they had anger issue. Really? And he loses his church over that? Yep. If you're not a fairy, pastor, you ain't going to make it. That's the new message. But there's a call to action. And God is calling us, each and every single one of us, to stand for truth. To have a sensitive conscience that will make us humble and contrite before God while at the same time a fear of the Lord that will make us strong, bold, and fearless before men because truth is at stake in our day and age. Postmodernism is not going to be kind to you. Cancel culture is not kind to anyone. Look, that's a religion. Social justice cult is up and rising. And the social justice cult also has a form of excommunication, and it's called cancel culture. We'll just cancel you, as they did Luther, and as they will you, if you don't let go of truth. There is no middle ground. And may we be the person that God is looking for. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.